Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. You picked a good one. We've got Harker Jones back on the show. If you recall, we had Harker back in season three and we covered the final girl trope. And within that episode, we spent a good you know few minutes talking about the 1986 uh, cult horror classic April Fool's Day. And we got we got pretty much like really invested in it to the point where we said, you know what, it would be fun to come back and just do an entire episode on that. So that's what we're doing. We're going to be covering 1986's April Fool's Day. And of course, I'm publishing it on April Fool's Day. This is so much fun. You're going to thoroughly enjoy this. And best of all, Parker Jones has brought us a guest. So without further ado, on with the show. Again, Harker. Dude, I am so, so pumped to be able to chat with you again. Uh, last last conversation we had was back in October of last year. And I remember in our conversation, we said we should we should totally do another episode. We should, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about April Fool's Day, so we should probably maybe even do that. And that's what we're here to talk about. But before we get into the movie that we're going to chat about, how are you? What's new? How uh, how have you been? I've been fairly well, I guess. You know, I'm just out here in LA trudging away, trying to get things done. But I did just get cast as an extra in a music video, which has been on my bucket list. It's a death metal band called Capture and... God, Capture. Oh, I'm, they would hate me. I'm totally spacing. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. But oh, I you're ca- fine. Capture, capture and release? Or I don't... Cover and divide. That was it. <laughs> capture and what? Conquer and Divide. Oh, Conquer and Divide. Okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Shout out to Conquer and Divide. <laughs> <laughs> and Josh Stolberg, who wrote the last few Saw movies and the Sorority Row remake and the Piranha movies, the newer ones, the past 10 years, I follow him on Twitter and he put out like a, a an appeal or whatever for like, oh, people who were like this or this or this. And then at the very end, or people who just want to have fun. And because I was none of the things he was actually looking for. So I DM'd him. I was like, I'd like to have fun. <laughs> anyway, so he asked me, and we'll see if it all comes to fruition. This is in is ongoing so far. He asked me to be Mr. June in a calendar he wants to create. Okay. Writers. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll stop eating and move to the gym. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so when do you start working on that? I don't know. I'm just waiting to hear from you now. Okay. He's in summer. So, yeah. you know, at least a couple of months still. Well, that's still, that, that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've been traveling. You were, uh, uh, what, what have you been doing recently? Like, did I just see that you had a little, like a little fun trip recently? I did. I went up to Big Bear and for like four days and it was great fun and we, we, I was worried about the weather because there's been so much snow here. I mean, so much weather across the country, but so much snow and rain here in Southern California. And it was like, you couldn't get there for so long. And I was worried that even though it was sunny at this point, that doesn't mean the roads are clear. Right. And they were, they were totally fine. I mean, there was snow, like walls of snow by the road. It was crazy, like taller than I am. And, and, but other than that, it was fine. Mm-hmm. It was lovely and i just yeah we walked around and checked out downtown big bear and played some games and hung out yeah it was really that nice sounds fun that sounds fun 
Um, so my dear friend, we are going to get into April Fool's Day, right? I mean, this is this is what we're really here about. And thank you very much for uh, also enjoying um, one of my favorite 80s films. And granted, I say that about like hundreds of 80s movies because that's my shit. Like I I love movies from every decade, but I can watch just about any movie from the 80s like on repeat back and like just rewind, start over, rewind, start all, you know, like watch the whole thing. I, uh, man, this, this is my bag. So the fact that like, we, we talked about the final girl trope and that was such a great, uh, great conversation, but we got into this, this 80, this mid eighties films, uh, April fool's day. And, and I think this is fun for a little like fun April fool's day release. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really don't even know where where to go, but I guess thank you for um, for for joining me on on this adventure. Uh, and um, before we start talking about it, what type of memories? What do you think about this movie? And we'll we'll talk about talk about the plot here uh, shortly. But what are what are emotional reactions that you have when you think of this movie? Obviously, there's nostalgia, but it, it just, it's so much, and I love slasher movies, so I say this with all respect, all props, it's just so much better than most of them. It is so much better written, so much better acted. There's an actual story, and you know, I don't mind, there's just a killer on the loose getting people, and that's a story, because that happens in real life. That's scary. That's scary. But in general, for, you know, a story, you know, <laughs> you want there to be a story, and this had one. And I just, I, I just, I, I like the characters. I think they're so well developed and they're so distinct and sort of they kind of hit, you know, like the the stereotypes or whatever, but they're richer than that. Like there are stereotypes. We're all a stereotype in some way and that's fine. But like, when, especially when you're writing it and performing it, like there has to be more to it. Even if you are just straight on stereotype, you know, the job of the writer and of course the director too, and the actor is to make it more than that and they did this is a rich a bunch of rich kids who could be you know we could want to watch them die just because they're so awful you're just, maybe we're just envious that they have money you know whatever but it's not like that they're they're, they're real people and even if some of them are kind of children <laughs> like like um arch and Chaz a little bit they're still um real people and that's what makes it stand out so much to me yeah, absolutely. Um, this is me. I'm I'm just uh, kind of like like going through some notes on on things I'd like to talk about. But fuck it, let's just get right into it. I don't even want to want to waste any more time. Um, so this is gonna be fun, and let's let's do this. Do you want me to cover for the listeners that haven't ever seen it? Do you want me to give kind of like a little gloss over plot? Do you want to cover the plot? Because I'm oh, gonna pull go like ahead. straight from Rotten Tomatoes if. Otherwise, oh, <laughs> I'm literally reading it. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're like, everyone knows like this movie is I'm looking out. I think it's 37 years old. Eek. But um, it, as of yesterday, it came out March 28th. We're sh- shooting this or recording this on March 29th. So it came pretty out damn timely years. if I can like pat ourselves on the back. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But also, like I mean, there's there are going to be spoilers. I think sorry, the- sorry, people. You've had over thirty years to figure it out. 
Right, right, right. You never prioritized it, so <laughs> it's on you. <laughs> yep. All right. So per the Rotten Tomatoes website directly, when a group of college students decide to spend spring break at a secluded island estate of their wealthy classmate, Muffy St. John, what starts out as a fun, hedonistic weekend turns into something more sinister. Muffy is very fond of practical jokes and sets up numerous gags throughout her mansion. But when friends begin going missing and turn up dead, they realize that they're trapped on an isolated aisle with a mysterious and brutal killer. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, that, that's, that's the plot, right? So you have a bunch of wealthy people that show up on, on uh, wealthy college uh, 80s kids that go to their friend's secluded mansion on her own island, and they get into some fun hijinks, pranks, a little like weekend trip, get away for some sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and then people start ending up dead, as is the case in many great 80s slasher films. But this is an 80s slasher film with a twist. Specifically, the twist is given to you directly in the title of the movie, which is this is April Fool's Day. This is all this is all a gag. This is all a joke. So might as well get the spoiler right out of the way, like in the beginning. Right. This is a slasher film where nobody really dies. But you find that out at the end of the movie. And. It's something so genius and so perfect that it pissed off audiences when the movie came out in many respects because this is the 80s, my my dear listeners, right? So you had Friday the 13th. You had Halloween. You had Nightmare on Elm Street. You had uh, 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 My Bloody Valentine. You had all these movies of the 80s where the slasher genre was front and center. And this movie was very, very meta in a way. It was it was kind of like a little holding a mirror up to these films and said, I'm going to give you a slasher movie, but I'm going to give you a slasher movie that isn't a slasher movie. I'm going to use all the tropes. I'm going to do all these things, but I'm going to give you a twist where the twist in the end is, who's the actual killer? But the twist at the end is, oh, there's no killer at all. It's all been just a little fuck you to the audience. And... That, for me, was one of the things I loved about this movie. Granted, I would have saw this movie as a kid, and I wouldn't have known what meta meant, but I did recognize that there was something different and special about this movie. But it is something that has been a lingering blemish on this movie because it did it did um, frustrate audiences in... Uh, in, in a way, we now use like the term like high, uh, elevated horror, like a movie like Hereditary or some of these Ari Aster films uh, or various other uh, Babadook or uh, It Follows, some of these elevated horror films where it's more of a character study. And the murder, although like the deaths are although important, aren't nearly as important as what the filmmakers are really trying to say about a story. And and you often see that reflected from audience scores like so like on the Rotten Tomatoes website, this has a 55 percent critic uh, rating, 47 percent audience score. The critic rating, although 50 50 pissed off some critics to the point where some critics literally revealed 
the twist ending in their fucking reviews, which is lunacy. But I know I've just been commandeering this conversation, but I want to turn over to to Harker here because I know you've got some opinions and some things that you want to share. But did we introduce the movie adequately? Absolutely. I think you did a great um, job of setting it up and then breaking it down as well. And to me, like, I know, I think a lot of um, horror fans, some people felt duped by the ending. And to me, I thought it was clever. And I didn't think about being April Fool's Day and, oh, maybe it's a joke. I just wasn't love for the rocket. I never figured in the ending out of movies. And I like that because I'm, I'm always surprised. I want to be surprised. But um, so I thought that was clever and I thought it was fun. And to me, horror is about suspense. So I thought it was very suspenseful. And the whole setup, as you said, about the Mogoyton Island and then being picked off, like that's catnip to me. Like That's like my favorite right. thing in the world. <laughs> and so I, I really liked it again with I was saying about the characters, they're so well drawn and the actors are so good. Like you want to spend time with them. And so it was so and it's not to say it's slow. I don't mean that at all. But we get to get to know them. And I liked that. And it made it more suspenseful because I did care about them. And I liked the fact that even though I didn't know that it was a joke at this point, that there wasn't a bunch of gore. I don't mind if there's gore and horror. I don't look at it myself. I turn away. I'm very good at this. And and I think people, some people felt duped and some people felt duped and they were, were pissed off that there wasn't a bunch of nudity and a bunch of blood and gore. Where like, to me, again, horror is about suspense. And I thought it was suspenseful. So it did its job. Right. I don't need the gore. And there couldn't be in this case because no one's really dying. Yeah. Every, every death that happens to this film, they all happen off camera. So if you are going into this movie, looking for blood and gore you're not getting it you're not getting a lot of those the, those great uh murder scenes that were like infamous in the friday the 13th uh films which by the way the the producer is frank mancuso who did all those friday the 13th films right so same same guy that you know is responsible for it and like the guy that did the music uh, Charles Bernstein did Nightmare on Elm Street. So you've got these connections to these other these other universes. But to your point of speaking of this is a little bit of a slow burn. You get opportunities to experience the acting and the acting and the actors are really good. Right. So from a cast perspective, you've got Jay Baker, uh, Deborah Foreman. You've got Griffin O'Neill, who was, um, I can't believe, uh, Ryan O'Neill's kid. Uh, You've got Clayton Roner. You've got Amy Steele, who, I mean, fucking like scream queen legend, who Harker and I, we spoke about on the Final Girls episode. And you got Biff Tannen from Back to the Future in Thomas F. Wilson in this. And lastly, and most important, and who we're going to be chatting with in this episode, shout out to Harker for making all of this happen. But we've got Deborah Goodrich, uh, who plays uh, Nikki in this. And this is going to be so much fun. I can't wait uh, for the conversation that we're about to have with her. Um, But again, beautifully acted. And what's also interesting about this movie is in all these teen slasher films, these are movies more times they're not about like high schoolers. This one is also a little departure from that because they're college age students, right? So you've got age appropriate actors playing college age kids as opposed to kids in their 20s playing 16, 17 year old actors. So it feels 
more realistic and Ooh. screenplay is really well done. Although what, what, what I do like is they allow the opportunity for some ad living and allowing these characters uh, to really find their own voice. They spend a lot of time working between the scenes and during production to get to know each other, develop, uh, develop those bonds. And I got to tell you, I, I get it. I understand the pacing sometimes is a little uneven. Um, is it a perfect movie? No. But is it a 55% critically? No, fuck no. Like for an 80s movie, this is this is a really, really strong movie. It's just, I feel in my heart of hearts, I don't think the movie was marketed accurately. The movie was marketed as a slasher film. Hell, even on the box office, which this movie, ha- or rather the, the VHS uh, tape, um, is a little misleading. But I think... When I think about this movie, I do think of the VHS like box cover where you've got everybody sitting at the table and there's a girl with a knife behind her hair of behind her back and her hair is like uh, like shaped like a noose. It's like one of the greatest like VHS uh, covers, but the movie was branded in a, uh, in a little bit of a different way. And again, this is more of a, a filmmaker holding a mirror up to a genre and having having a little bit of fun. But it's told to you from the fucking title. It's told to you this is April Fool's Day. This is a joke. This is this whole thing is a joke. But it was so well done and the acting is so good that you forget like that you're watching like, oh, oh, yeah. Fuck. I should have seen that coming. I can't believe I was invested in this movie. But again, the acting is really good. And I can't believe I just that suspension of disbelief, like I'm watching a slasher movie, but I'm not actually seeing anybody die on camera. And then you're given that little that moment in the end. And you're like, Fuck, how did I not see that? Oh, the joke was on me this entire time, which I think is, again, like if I haven't made myself abundantly clear, I love this movie. And I, I like I like filmmakers. uh doing something at the expense of an audience. And I like uh, the, the the meta element and where we're at now with films like Scream and other like self-aware movies. This was an early, this was an early example of a very self-aware film. Absolutely. And I felt like Fred Walton, the director, who also did When a Stranger Calls, mm. calls back. So he knows it's about suspense. He knows how to, to milk, not say milk, but you know, <laughs> who work a scene. To, to heighten suspense to, to the highest point. Um, and I thought, so when he's holding this mirror up to this genre, I feel like it's affectionately. He's taking it seriously, but also turning it a little bit, but he's not mocking slasher movies. He's, he's not talking down to the audience. He just gave them something that they weren't necessarily expecting. And sometimes people don't want that. And I don't know if, uh, I, excuse me, we've all been disappointed, sometimes a lot through marketing. Um, there are times I'm like, well, you told me this is a horror movie and this is a drama. Or uh, you said this is science fiction, but it's really a comedy, which can be can be fine if I know it's both. But if it's yeah. marketed as one, then it's not. I'm just like, um, I don't know what you want from me because I didn't like this. And um, I, I feel like you said about the marketing with this. I, I mean, it is a slasher movie, but maybe if they marketed it more as a suspense or a thriller or a mystery maybe that would have worked in in its favor because his critics don't like slasher movies for the most part <laughs> and mm-hmm. and audiences 
wanted full slasher. So I, I feel like they, I don't remember exactly how they marketed it, but um, my guess is they sold it like for what it is and people took away from it what they thought it was going to be. If that makes any sense at all. <laughs> no, hundred percent, dude. I think, I think that's perfect. And I think at this point we'll, we'll segue into the movie. I think we've entered or rather in a segue into the interview. I think we painted the picture, but for all this talk that we're talking about, how it missed the mark a little bit. This is a movie with a five million dollar budget, very, very modest for 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 a horror film. Um, box office wise, made thirteen million. So really, you want that sweet spot to at least double what the box office is. It did. It wasn't necessarily as successful as uh, some of the Nightmare on Elm Street or uh, Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween films, but the movie was uh, profitable. Right. Um, by and large, you know, I think it was a, a success. A movie was filmed in Canada, which is also kind of wild. I, I don't know how many other movies were were filmed up in Canada at this time. Uh, I don't have that type of type of notes. But I mean, they they did get a lot of like their their secondary stuff like on the lot in L.A. But this movie was done on location in Canada, which is kind of cool. But I want you to have the opportunity to introduce uh, the guests that we have, and we're gonna we're gonna have the real fun part. So, so Harker, I mean, you you did all the legwork. Do you wanna do you wanna open this up? Well, I somehow she popped into my head a few months ago. I don't know, and so I looked her up, and I was like, oh, Instagram, I'll follow her, and I saw that she's writing books. So, and I thrillers, and I love thrillers. I write thrillers as well. And so I was like, oh, this is really fun. And she's really active on social media. And I read Ruby Falls, which I thought was really well done and really fun. I've not read Finding Mrs. Ford or Refroed yet, but um, I did not see what was coming in Ruby Falls, which is a testament to the writer because I was like, wait, what's going on? You know, because it's one of those things, it's a psychological thing where you think you're following it. You know, <laughs> it's not like from the beginning, you're like, what's happening? But, you know, and then the end, you're like, wait, what? I thought it was really well done. And so when we, um, Andrew and I had done a podcast last maybe October about horror movies. I don't even remember. Something, something. We're talking about something. Yeah, we were, and we were talking uh, Final Girls. Final Girls. Oh, yes. And he asked who my favorite was. So I said Amy Steele. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And we talked to April Fool's Day, Friday the 13th, part two. And so then we decided to do an April Fool's Day podcast specifically about that movie and then i was like well maybe if i reach out to her she would like to come on and just chit chat for a few minutes and here we are <laughs> here we are so you mentioned the plot twist in ruby falls and so i've written three books and they all have a very real plot twist and for anybody who's listening and doesn't know the difference between a plot twist and a reveal, and this is terminology that's really used in the literary world, but I think it's true of films also, a reveal is Agatha Christie. You're in a locked room. The three of us are in the room. One of us is murdered. One of us did it. And, you know, three quarters of the way in, in watch, walks the detective and said it was this one. So it's it, it is revealed to the audience what happened, but it's not, you know, earth shattering. A plot twist is when, like in April Fool's Day, you come to a certain moment where you, you think, wait a second, this is not what, what I thought was happening is not what is happening at all. 
So for Ruby Falls, my editor gave me a fabulous note. And I am a really cinema literary person. They they mix in my mind. And she said, rewatch the movie The Sixth Sense. Mm. And when you get to the in the sixth sense, what they do in the film is they give you a series of flashes of scenes you've already seen from a slightly different perspective. She said, so when it comes to the point of your twist, you don't want your readers to guess it and they won't guess it, but you don't want them to be irritated. You have to drop the breadcrumb trail so that when you get to that moment, they can say, oh, that's why this, that's why that. And they're not going to hate your guts. So right. that's my long spiel on plot twists. <laughs> well, it was a good one. It is because you rethink everything that came before. Right. And you're like, oh, and boom, 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 boom. And things start falling yeah. in the like, whoa. And it just, it's, it's masterful. Like with the sixth sense, like you don't know. And then when he shows you, like you said, just a little different angle. Like it, it, yeah. Williams, no one ever spoke to him. He only spoke to them. But you don't notice, you don't know until you know. <laughs> that's right. And that's, and it's rewarding. And what the point she was making about Agatha Christie, one of the things that's so annoying about that to the modern audience, is you feel like you never could have guessed. Because let's say there are 22 people in the room and the detective walks in and says, it was the French parlor maid. And you're like, I didn't even notice her. Right. That's, that's not fulfilling in any way. No, you're you're 100% right. And not that I want to completely uh, just have, like segue this completely into the sixth sense, but uh, it, it's genius that bring that bring that up because of the fact that why I think that movie works so well is that also M. Night Shyamalan use a lot of our own filling in the gaps just as movie viewers, right? So often you watch scenes and people are already in them. You rarely get the somebody opening up the door, walking in, hello, how are you? You usually get those moments where they're already in a room. So when you have Bruce Willis and Tony Collette in the same room, and then, you know, little Haley Joel Osment walks in, we as viewers just assume that they've already been chatting that whole time. So we don't need any of that expositional BS, right? So it's like, oh, what we really care about is the relationship between Cole and uh, Bruce Willis's character, right? So it's something that's very, very genius with the way that the movie was even framed is because it's it takes those audience expectations and audience understanding of how we make films and then circumventing that, like the whole rule and then completely turning it upside down. So right. it, it's, it, it, it is genius versus like the reveal versus plot twists and also how we, how we, uh, mislead audiences or or and unfortunately sometimes piss audiences off which i think is a natural segue into april fool's day because i think <laughs> for my personal one of the things that harker and i really really uh latched into in our last conversation is the fact that this is a slasher movie and you know i i don't think at, at any point this is really a spoiler as the movie is you know coming on for its 40th anniversary but it's a slasher <laughs> film where Nobody actually dies, at least in the the uh, the re uh, the release that we have now. And I would love to talk about the original ending that you may or may not have shot. I don't know if it was ever actually filmed. Well, we shot it. We shot it. I I had a lot of stuff to do in that, including running through the woods for multiple takes and face planting 
in this forest pond that had these water spiders on the top of it. It was such a horrible thing to do. So I was really not happy that they didn't use it. Oh, man. And it's such a better ending. It's significantly better. Yeah, you know, it's it is fascinating. The studio came in and just tightened it up and they just cut that off. Um, it was a very witty ending when every we all went back to the island to reverse the prank on Muffy. And um, yeah, it's, you know, decision by committee is not always a good decision. I think a, a little bit of the film was diminished by that being lopped off. I think so too. And I mean, I like darker endings. So to me, that is far more fun. This one with like, just kind of the jump scare, I guess, at the end, that little tack on thing. I don't even understand. Like, what is that happening? <laughs> I well, and they shot that, we had shot it all on location in British Columbia and they shot that back in LA at Paramount just to, you know, add something add on. Add something on, yeah. Now, the film came out in 86. Did you film it, what, 85 or 86? 84. Okay. No, five. 85. 85. How long were you out in British Columbia? Oh, a few months. Uh, I recall that it was early fall, September, October, August, September, that that time. In one of the other interviews that, that, that I had seen with you, you had mentioned, obviously, this is a movie that came out in the same kind of like era as like everything with like the Brat Pack and you had you know, the whole like early to mid eighties, you had just a ton, a ton of stuff going on. And something that was very, very famous with John Hughes is he, he got everybody together um, and basically rehearsed for, for a long time and they, they built up their own little clique. So I'm just kind of like, what I love about this movie is the, the acting is fantastic, but it also felt like there were bonds that had been built like during Maybe, you know, the um, the rehearsing or uh, just being on set. So I'm just kind of curious, what was that that whole experience like between obviously you and Deborah Foreman and obviously Thomas F. Wilson and Clayton Rohner, who had you you had worked with or no, I guess you hadn't worked with yet. Um, no, I had. I had. I, oh, we had done uh, just one of the guys before this. OK. And so just kind of what was that experience all like? It was fabulous. Well, first of all, I had a, a chill of fear that I would do all my movies with Clayton Rohner. And then, <laughs> <laughs> it's not to say anything bad about Clayton Rohner. I really liked him, but like him. But I thought, well, that's, that is so odd that we were love interests in two movies. Mm -hmm. um, and I just liked everybody. And I'm still in touch with a lot of people from that film. It just we had so much fun. Uh, Fred Walton, the director, was a very responsive person, and he paid attention to what was going on. And that whole sex quiz had to do, I guess I was reading a Cosmo quiz to uh, cast members on, on the set at some point, and he saw that and took it to clearly a raunchier place. But um, yeah, and I'm still in touch with Fred Walton. I've sent him drafts of my books, and uh, it's, you know, that was a very special experience. You know, you go away with people like that, and you are sort of thrust into this bonding experience. So I've, I've heard, I don't remember I heard this, that there was a, a remake, or a sequel, that they had 
exploded? I think there was, oh, well, I'll tell you two things. There was a remake and I've heard it wasn't good. And then I was sent in the 90s, the script to a potential sequel. And I cannot remember who the writers were and it featured Clayton and me. We would have been a married couple who had bought an old X-rated theater in Times Square that we were <laughs> fixing up as a B&B. &B. And <laughs> we invite our nie nephew, niece, somebody. We're a childless couple. So by then we're in our 30s, we don't have kids. But one of us has a college age niece or nephew. And we invite that person to come stay with us in New York in our porno bed and breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and where there's no pornography actually going on anymore. But I guess the ghosts of, you know, the ghosts of porn stars past. So, um, <laughs> I can't remember where it went from there. I received the script. I don't know. That was the end of that. If anybody's listening who wrote that script, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know how it went. <laughs> yeah, I never heard another word. Regarding this film, obviously, um, wonderful experience you were on it for three months how did you get attached to this project i had heard i what i heard was that the offer went to sarah jessica parker and she couldn't do it and then it went to me Sarah Jessica Parker, if you're listening. <laughs> I don't know if that's Joke's true. Joke's on you. <laughs> that's what I heard. Uh, well, she did okay. Let's. She's, she's, done, she's done all right. She's done okay. We're not worried about her. That's what I heard. And Fred Walton told me he had watched me and Clayton in a, uh, Just One of the Guys and loved the chemistry. That mm -hmm. So maybe the Sarah Jessica Parker was a rumor. I don't know. <laughs> a great story <laughs> yeah when it came to like stunts because obviously a lot of characters were kind of like killed off like off camera which is one of the things that separates this movie but there was still some stunt work and is it true that you did your own your own stunt work oh i fell into that well so many times we had a <laughs> cross section i think we shot the interiors of the well back in la and we had a this god-awful waiting pool that the entire crew was standing in smoking cigarettes and dropping their cigarettes and coca-cola cans and coffee cups in the water and the cross section of the well and i had to keep falling in it and falling in it because the uh the handle came loose <laughs> i had an ear infection for three weeks <laughs> from that filthy water it was filthy Awful water. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> and I fell in that spider pond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From what I understand, obviously, filming it was was a blast. Everybody seemed to have a good time. What were your expectations when the movie was coming out? I think I thought it would do better. I thought it was such a smart and clever script. And I thought it was such a good cast that, that did have very strong chemistry. I think 
I think probably the studio didn't really know how to promote it. I, and it's a hard, hard to promote things that cross genre. I think people can get very much stuck in ruts. And I think April Fool's Day was really elevated to a level above its genre, the expectation of its genre. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I thought it would do better than it did. It's interesting that you bring that up as far as like the elevated aspect um, because of the fact that, uh, I mean, we we live in a term now where like elevated horror is something that is part of like the status quo. People, you know, uh, use that term interchangeably with just about anything. And this movie was very, very interesting in that the fact that it was a a teen slasher film, but they weren't teenagers, right? These were these were college students. These were they were older. And then obviously playing with the whole expectation of it's a slasher film where nobody's really being like sliced and diced in it. Um, the the kind of like the the look that obviously uh, from the writing and then the direction from um, Fred Walton, it almost was kind of I don't want to say an FU to uh, to that audience, but there was kind of a. We know the expectations that people have within the, the genre, and you're still going to use a lot of those tropes. But the movie is a joke toward toward the audience, and it is kind of a mirror. And I think that's one of the things that I've always loved about about this film. And and granted, I love a good slasher film, the uh, Halloween series, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, etc. Always a lot of fun. But something that was always special about this one was the fact that it it did it understood the rules and the way that the 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 narrative process in this it obeyed those rules, but there was a a mirror like almost where the the, the filmmakers and the writers like, well, we, we think you're a little bit smarter than you, which I think also goes back to in your earlier statement of kind of like the reveal versus plot twist of the fact that kind of almost turning on the audience. But I always felt that this movie knew that going into it. So it maintained its consistency. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you got me thinking about um, <clears throat> my latest book, Reef Road. I, I When I talk to people about it, I, I talk about a, a certain aspect that we would now call meta, uh, in that it's a work of art that is self-referential. There, there's a wink on behalf of the creator to the, you know, the viewer of a film or the reader that we're having this conversation and I'm winking at you. And I'm going to bring you in on this. And it's it's always a tricky thing to approach. Uh, but I think there was a meta aspect to April Fool's Day that um, was very novel at the time. I think in literary fiction and film, both uh, the, the novel and then the the film made of it, you could think of something like The French Lieutenant's Woman in a completely different genre. That was meta. That was self-referential. Um, but April Fool's Day was, too. And I think maybe the viewing audience going to see it, expecting just a straight up, because a lot of those slasher films, there was no, not only was there not a plot twist, there wasn't much of a reveal. You knew who was doing it. You knew who they were after. It was just playing it out and playing it out. This added, uh, you know, that wink. Mm -hmm. 
I think like 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 Scream came out, and that was very meta, and that exploded. Obviously, it's Scream, but I think audiences are just more. I would say they're smarter now, and I don't think that's necessarily true. But I think that they're more open to things like this, to being challenged a little bit more. Right, and I think Scream really couldn't have happened if April Fool's Day hadn't happened a decade before. Yeah, very good call. Yeah. Now, with our with our final few moments that we've got you, and again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with us. Harker, did you have any 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 final questions? Because I do want to ask a little bit about Reef Road. We've got we've got you on, and I, I know this is your your most recent novel, so I'd love you uh, love an opportunity for you to talk to us a little bit about it. But Harker, if you've got any final questions, um, lay them on us. Uh, one is just a statement. Um, I read that you're from Warren, Michigan. I am for that's Metro Detroit, right? Yeah, I'm from Manchester, Michigan, which is I grew up on a dirt road, really far in the country. Oh, <laughs> like 20 minutes outside Ann Arbor. I grew up on a dirt road. No, in oh, uh, you were here ish. Is that I here? Was here. Yes, yes. For the listeners, they're giving us the universal Michigan hand sign right now. <laughs> um, my question really is about Ruby Falls because yeah. reading it, and it was about it's about an actress for Andrew, who I don't know if he knows what it's about who um, was a soap opera after she got fired and she marries someone kind of suddenly and then she moves to LA and she starts working on a film. And reading it about the, the soap opera and all that, I was like, wait a minute. Like, oh my God, right. I remember her from All My Children. <laughs> I remembered you being Silver, Erica's stepsister. Was it Silver Kane? Silver Kane, her half-sister, yeah. Half-sister. And I was like, oh yeah. And then because in the story, the, the character gets let go before she thinks that she's going to be. And I'm like, I remember at the time, all this is coming back as I'm reading it. Um, I was like, I remember even as a child, I was watching things far beyond what I should have been watching. And I mean, watching soap operas. And I was thinking, I thought she was going to be a bigger character, like a longer lasting character. So how much of like Ruby Falls is true in terms of her, the, the character's career? So I take snippets. I take, you know, little bits and pieces of things I've lived, things I've seen, and I use little bits. Uh, Eleanor Russell is an actress on a soap opera who's written out. She played the sister of the star. I, those things are true. Did it happen exactly like that? No. Um, after I was on All My Children, Paramount Pictures flew me to L.A. to screen test for a, a pilot with Christopher Lloyd, which I ended up doing. And I was so struck by the Paramount lot and the gates and, you know, all these little things stayed in my mind. And when I started writing Ruby Falls and I really wanted it to be sort of a, a twist on Rebecca, which is a classic gothic novel not gothic with vampires but you know traditional gothic i thought what better place to set it than the hollywood hills i mean if you think about the first line of rebecca it's last night i dreamt i went to manderley again and that that sentence packs so much because you you're thinking like well what is manderley who is this person why can't this person go there it has this spooky feeling and i I just found the Holly, I find the Hollywood Hills, um, you can evoke so much. So, so I pulled all these things and, and I do that with every book. I, I just, <laughs> I take little snippets. 
that makes sense. I kind of figured it was kind of like that because the movie that she ends up making, I was like, I don't think she made a movie like that. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Yeah. That's my last question, just about Ruby Falls, since I've read that and I quite enjoyed it. So obviously, uh, two questions, but the, the last one obviously is going to be specifically about Reef Road. But when we think of the legacy of April Fool's Day, and it's a movie that's continued to find its audience over the years, you know, you've been asked hundreds of questions about this. But are there any questions that from this experience, when you think about it, uh, or even from like an emotional aspect, is there anything that you're like, Maybe I, I wish somebody would ask me about this or or something that you think of from that time that you haven't that you haven't uh, shared that you're like, I can't believe nobody's ever asked about this. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't think I have a specific question uh, that has been burning to be answered that hasn't been asked. You really, really touched on, I think, most part of that film was really the ensemble part of it, the two things, the the clever, smart twist, and then the ensemble acting. And it was an era, uh, as we've talked about, of ensemble films, which that's a really uh, magical kind of film to make. It's a And it relies a lot on the dynamic on the set, on what is created and, and that experience of being together. And I'm wondering, and I don't know, would it be the same making an ensemble film if you were all living at home and going home in your separate cars to your separate? I don't know the answer to that, but it is um, <clears throat> it's such a cohesive experience. So and the legacy of it, I do think that film has a strong legacy. I think it it gets stronger and stronger. The Hollywood Reporter a year or two ago picked a certain number of films. It was the 100th anniversary of The Hollywood Reporter, and they picked certain films from each year in that those 100 years. And April Fool's Day was one of the picks for 1986. And I thought, well, I am prouder of that than anything. That's awesome. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Reef Road. Pitch it to me. What, like, what are the what are the readers going to get out of it? What can you tell us about Reef Road? So on December the 10th, 1948, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my mother's, my real mother's best friend was savagely murdered at home on a Friday night. My mom was supposed to be at her house that night. And for whatever reason, my grandmother said no. And the parents had gone out bowling. And when they came home, they found their daughter sprawled out on the floor, having been stabbed 36 times. It has remained an unsolved crime. And it has had an effect on my mother's life and consequently my own. March the 13th, 2020, I am here in this house in Florida and the world shuts down. You all know where you were. And I thought I'm finally going to research that real crime. And what I was looking to dig into was the idea of generational trauma and conferred trauma. Trauma that isn't necessarily your own, but that really derails you. You think about Dominic Dunn, whose daughter was murdered in 1984, yeah. changed his life. He became this reporter for Vanity Fair of our most salacious murder trials. You think about Michelle McNamara. She wrote, I'll be gone in the dark. She was very influenced by a murder of a girl in her Chicago suburb. So as I'm researching 
heavily the real crime. And there's a tremendous amount of material now on the internet because everything's uploaded. I decided not to write it as nonfiction. I wanted to get to the truth of what I was exploring without the encumbrance of all those pesky facts. For example, the real girl had two brothers. One brother was the primary suspect. I didn't need that second brother. It was just a mess. In nonfiction, I couldn't get rid of the second brother. So Reef Road is a dual narrative set here in Palm Beach in the COVID lockdown of 2020. It's a lonely writer researching the murder of her mother's best friend. And it's the story of a younger woman named Linda Alonzo, uh, whose husband, uh, Miguel Alonso, a very dishy fellow from Argentina, husband and young children disappear about three weeks into the COVID lockdown. And the uh, security camera footage reveals them in their face masks getting on a plane at Miami International for Buenos Aires. And she can't follow because of the pandemic, the border closures. And you start to toggle back and forth and figure out what one woman has to do with the other because it is not evident here in this beautiful barrier island of Palm Beach, Florida. And tonally, I wanted to get to, there's a quotation I really like. I've heard it attributed to Carl Hyacin, having said about Florida, but then I heard, no, 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 it was actually Somerset Mom who said it about the French Riviera in the 1920s. Either way, this is it. A sunny place for shady people. So I wanted that dark kind of seedy underbelly tone of Florida. It was hot. It was buggy. Uh, the lockdown was surreal. It was like the twilight zone. And I think people love to see dark doings in a beautiful place. So that's Reef Road. That That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And Harker, thank you for for setting all of this up. I, I can't stress enough how how much of an honor and a treat it is to speak with you. And you are just amazing. So thank you for uh, for chatting with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'll see you on Instagram. <laughs> thank you both. I, I so appreciate it. It means a lot. Thank you. Cool. Take all right. Care. Bye. Good night. And so I don't know about you, Harker, but I think that went really freaking well. Uh, Major, major shout out to Deborah for being on the show. That was incredible for her taking her time out uh, to speak with us. And a major, uh, you know, bow and thanks and uh, tip of the hat, a little chapeau, as they say in uh, in France, uh, over to you for making all of this happen. Uh, Harker, great fucking work, dude. Pardon my French, but great work uh, setting all this up. Thanks. It's the magic of social media. <laughs> so what do you think? I, I know I asked a little bit more of the questions, but how do you think that went? I think it went really well. She was super engaging, really relaxed, really um, generous with her time to pop yeah. on, you know, spent half an hour or whatever it was to, to be with us. I think it was really classy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that you can you can hear even that she's spoken about this movie dozens, if not hundreds of times, you know, that she still has uh, a hunger and a thirst uh, to to share these stories. So you can see it, it's abundantly clear just listening to her that uh, that this experience is something that that she looks back on fondly uh, or maybe she's grown uh, or found an appreciation 
to uh, to discuss this movie. And what I do like is where she mentions that like films like Scream might not necessarily have happened because, you know, without a movie like this. And I would have to agree, you know, obviously uh, Wes Craven had been doing his thing and, um, you know, Kevin Williamson is, you know, a wonderful filmmaker, but this is a movie that was really ahead of ahead of its time for 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 using that whole like metasphere uh, a way of looking at at filmmaking. And I think also there's the stepping stone between probably others that we are we're not thinking of or aware of, but the stepping stone of Wes Craven's New Nightmare before yes. Spring. That was also meta. I mean, everyone was Robert England was playing himself, Heather Langenkamp, Wes was playing himself, and Freddie came into the real world of Hollywood. And it was so clever and so creative. And the Elm Street series had run out of gas long before that. Mm-hmm. And, and that brought it back. And that also didn't do very well. It did okay, from what yeah. I remember. You know, I, mean, I think the critics might have been kind of in on it a little bit more than they had the sequels that preceded it, which. I think it's true of most people. <laughs> and so I think that also then was a jump. That was a few years later. And then a few years after that, then Scream. And Scream just exploded, maybe because Kevin Williamson. You know, maybe he just mm-hmm. got this right. There's also about the acting and the casting. And there's a story. It's not those people getting killed. It's a story. And it's a whodunit. It's a mystery. Like April Fool's Day, who was doing this? And that's that's suspenseful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's really, really, that, that that's a great point. Um, and I think what Scream, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and this all have in common is the fact that, yeah, I mean, witty dialogue is great, but character, right? I mean, this is really what it comes down to is very interesting people, even if you don't necessarily agree with their perspectives or their politics, you allow opportunities for for character to shine through, right? So you right. within this movie, you see a little bit about who these people are. You don't see and nobody really nobody. I, I I use the term dies, uh, but nobody dies. But I mean, they their their death, if you will, within the film happens after characters have been kind of explored. Obviously, you have the scene on the boat, but that. You know, it's a little bit different, but each of the characters, you have that opportunity, you find out different elements of who these people are. And and that's good. And that's the same thing with Wes Craven's New Nightmare. You you allow uh, Heather Langenkamp to have her her moment uh, to understand who she's about. You understand uh, Robert England playing Freddie, Wes Craven as his own character in the movie. Uh, and then you scream, same thing. You're you're allowing really great opportunities uh, to build character. Not that we don't just enjoy hack and slash, but sure. giving an opportunity to build a narrative, build a story around it, I think at the end of the day is the difference between good cinema and bad cinema. Right. And these movies all have humor, but it's not stupid or broad or obvious. It comes from the characters and the relationships. And so that it doesn't take you out of it. It doesn't become a comedy necessarily. Like some, you know, like Shaun of the Deadless. That's a comedy. Right. That that's not horror. <laughs> you know, it's not its intent is not to frighten you. And I think that really is is um going back to the script, obviously. And it's by Danilo Bach. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. 
he got a story credit for Beverly Hills Cop, but apparently he didn't write it. So I don't, mm. I don't know what happened. I don't know anything about it. But he did such a good job with things like that. And like you said, there was some ad-libbing. I don't know how much was ad- ad-lib, you know, but just that questionnaire in the in the kitchen. And this, right. It's a fairly lengthy scene, maybe 90 seconds or something, 75 you know, for, for three characters just to be talking there. And does it move the plot ahead? No. Does it just tell you something about character? You know, kind of, yeah. It isn't what it tells us about the character. Does it pertain to the story? Not necessarily, but we get to know them. And and that's really important. And it's really funny. And, and it comes across as so natural. That is what sells it. It's the actors. And just like when um, um, Amy Steele and Ken Olin or Oland, I always get them confused. Um, you know, they're coming back after the, the scene Chaz or um, Skip's body. And Clayton Roller's like, respectable young Quaker couple returning from an afternoon of nonviolent sex. <laughs> and perfect, because that is his character. And it's something, you know, your friend would just say about your other friends. Just right. off. But it's funny, and it just, it, it doesn't take you out of the mystery. Or the yeah. Suspense. But there's still humor, and 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 that's nice. I feel like in screen there might have been more like almost laugh out loud humorous points, and then maybe a scare right after. You almost don't even have time to laugh, and it comes out. And this isn't quite like that, but I feel like they're similar in that way because as you you do learn things about the characters, and you get to know them, and you get to care for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I this isn't. I mean, again, we we we've chatted a lot about this movie before. I don't want to kind of like rehash different or similar conversations we've had before. And this isn't like a deep dive. Really, this episode was the interview with uh, with Deborah Goodrich, right? More than anything. Um, I just love being able to rewatch this movie, have this conversation with you. I don't really want to take honestly, I don't even want to get into the fact of um, Griffin O'Neill, a.k.a. Ryan O'Neill's son. I don't know if you know, like the like like the story. But basically, like a little life imitating art, like there was a scene on the boat uh, where, you know, there was a little prank turned accident. Unfortunately, Griffin O'Neill had a manslaughter incident that happened on a boating mishap. Uh, you people can read about that. Uh, it has to do with Francis Ford Coppola's son. I don't even I don't even want to get into that. But that is something that when people discuss that movie, they do bring up. So you can you can research that case in itself. I, I there is an episode to be had about that. There's always conversations, but I want to focus on the the fun element and and that's kind of the the angle that I'm that I'm looking at this way. So if you wanted a little deep dive on that, I'm not going to provide it. I mean, Parker, if there's anything you want to say about it, you can, but I don't. You know, I knew, I knew, I know that he was troubled, and I don't know like what he's doing now or anything. But I did forget that. That's that's a real yikes. Um, <laughs> I did not remember that. Um, you know, in some of these, like um, what's his name, Thomas Tom Wilson. Yeah, he's got quite a career as a character actor. I mean, he's still doing stuff all the time. And, and yeah, Thomas F. Wilson. You know, Biff Tannen, uh, Back to the Future. He's he continues to do stand up. Clayton Rohner has continued to have acting. And as we mentioned, uh, Deborah Goodrich, shit, Deborah Foreman has done pretty okay for herself as well. Uh, Amy Steele, um, just again, a legend. 
And if you are into like horror film, she always often appears at like horror film conventions and loves loves talking about, you know, uh, the Friday the 13th and, and this film as well. So if you're into that stuff, definitely check check her out. Parker, do you have anything else that you want to say? I just want I'm just, I'm just pumped. I want to get this episode uh, out to the out, out to the masses. Um, I know, but now I'm going to go to the next horror convention, hope Amy Steele's there. <laughs> <laughs> it just has such presence and there was such a naturalness to her and that and then she retired, you know, soon after this, I think within a few years and mm-hmm. I read she became a therapist. Or something. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. I might be wrong. <laughs> but no, she, no, no, you're probably right. I just didn't, I didn't know what she did. Sure. She went into some other industry entirely. And um, it's too bad for us. <laughs> I'm sure she's very happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think, I think we should just uh, leave it there. And listeners, as always, thank you so much. I'm going to have a really good show notes. You can find out more about this movie, more about my website, find out more about Harker. Uh, we'll have links for, uh, for Deborah's, um, her, her, her novels and everything. And so take a look at there. And if you are checking this out, please like, listen, subscribe, tell your friends, share whatever it is that you need to do. But as always, thank you so much for, for checking out Stamper Cinema. Parker, please say goodbye. Take your time. Uh, talk about Menza, whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, I, I give you the floor. Thanks for having me again. Um, and I'm always happy to come back. This is thrilling. I'm glad we got Deborah Goodrich come in. It was, you know, a shot in the dark. You never know. And as I've learned through life, you know, you don't know unless you ask. And so often I just don't ask. I'm like, oh, it'll never happen. <laughs> <laughs> and you right. can my, my book, My Love Story Until September, it's on Amazon, Kobo, Google Play, Barnes and Noble, Apple probably somewhere else at some point you start forgetting <laughs> it's much more than i am right now <laughs> <laughs> harker as always it is truly a pleasure i love chatting with you love it too thank you ladies and gentlemen we'll see you next time on another episode of stanford cinema 